Hello, and welcome to the third episode of the Language Hacking Podcast, where we share the everyday stories from language learners around the world. My name is Shannon Kennedy, and in this episode, Benny and I are going to be talking with Paulette. One of the big aims we have for this podcast is to let everyday language learners tell their stories of language learning, and that's why I'm really excited to be sharing this conversation with Paulette. Paulette is an avid language learner and cancer survivor. She speaks a variety of languages to different levels, including French, Spanish, and Chinese. I particularly appreciated her insights on reaching conversational fluency in a new language and on self-compassion when you don't always meet your own expectations. All the resources mentioned in this episode can be found in our show notes at languagehacking.com. So sit back and enjoy this interview with an ordinary but also extraordinary language learner. Welcome to the Language Hacking Podcast from Fluent in Three Months. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Language Hacking Podcast. I am here today with my co-host, Shannon. Hello. And we have a very interesting guest for you. We'll be talking to Paulette, who has a a fascinating story that um, I think many of you will find very inspirational. So how are you doing today, Paulette? Hi, um, I'm doing really well. Thank you for having me on. This is um, I'm something really excited to be doing this. So thanks. We're really glad to have you on. So I wanted to just jump right into it. Uh, we've gotten to know you through the Fluent in Three Months Challenge. So can you tell us a little bit about what your language learning story is and how you were introduced to the challenge and what made you decide to join it? Oh, wow. So my language learning story, um, I think it probably begins with really disliking French when I was in when I was in school as a young child because I'm, I'm from Canada and so it was obligatory for us to take French in school and I hated it and in fact I thought that I hated all languages and I thought that learning a language I don't think I even really knew that it was possible I just think that they made us take it just because and when I was in university, I fell in love with foreign languages actually through, I would say through literature and through travel um, were the two main avenues for me. I traveled internationally. I did a foreign exchange to Scotland when I was in my third year of undergrad. And that was a huge impact on me. I lived in a really international community. Um, I had roommates and classmates who were multilingual. I, you know, lived across the hallway from a woman from the south of France. I was in classes with a bunch of Dutch people who, you know, because they were from the Netherlands, they all spoke, you know, three or four languages perfectly. And I started to realize that actually learning another language was possible. And I wanted to take Russian because I loved Russian literature and they wouldn't let me take it in Scotland because a full course load in Scotland was three classes and they thought four would be too many, which I thought was crazy because in back in Canada, we take five or six at a time, Um, but they wouldn't let me do it. So I started trying to learn Russian by myself and it was a total failure. I had no idea what I was doing. Um, But that was the first kind of, even the first time that I even thought maybe I could learn a language without being in a class because I couldn't, wasn't allowed to sign up for a class. And then when I went back to Canada, I started to become really regretful of the fact that I'd wasted my opportunity to learn French when I was younger. And so 
I started trying to brush up on my French. And then I also took an Italian class. Um, I studied ancient languages for my undergrad. I, st- I studied Latin and ancient Greek literature and, and language. So I kind of had this mix of loving language, but still kind of being really terrible at it and not knowing how to learn. And then as an adult, I, I guess just was smarter and I, I was better at finding resources. And so I started researching online. I actually discovered italki before I discovered Fluent in Three Months. So I was taking French lessons with an italki tutor, really lovely woman. And the thing that I was lacking was consistency and motivation. That was the real problem for me when I was trying to learn Russian by myself, when I was working on Italian, when I was learning French. And it, it was, I needed like a structure. And so that was how I came upon Fluent in Three Months. I think I was Googling something like, you know, how to motivate yourself or how to set a language learning schedule or something. And I found the blog and I thought, you know, that sounds like such a perfect idea because it's something where there's a structured commitment, it, there's a definition, there's a community, there's accountability. So that's actually what brought me to Fluent in Three Months was that I was terrible at learning languages. Um, and I needed to find a way to create some kind of regularity and create some kind of um, accountability for myself. And it, and it worked. I'm, I'm way, 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 way better at that now. So thanks. <laughs> Absolutely. And what do you think, uh, so from that point that you say, as you were searching around and before you, or as you were finding Fluent in Three Months, that you were terrible at languages, what do you think has changed since then? Um, and how has your language learning evolved over the years? The funny thing is nothing has really changed, right? I'm still the same person. And that's, that's the thing that I think a lot of people don't get. What has changed? Actually nothing, except that I'm just following a different method. I'm just doing different things. I'm still the same person with the same flaws, the same, you know, character, but I have a more intelligent strategy and I have better tools. And I think that's the thing that's important for people to realize is you don't have to become a better person in order to learn the language. You can be you with just better plans. And so that that's the thing that's really helped me is, you know, having a, a step-by-step walkthrough of, okay, what does it actually take to learn a language? Because a lot of people, they know, they have an idea in their head of, this is what it looks like to speak a language. Like they can picture it, but they can't necessarily picture what it looks like to learn a language. Like, what do you do every day? And so that's what's really helped me is having a concrete set of steps. And now I have particular goals that I set for myself each week, each month, I know what vocabulary I need, then I focus on that. I know what grammar I think is important, and I know what grammar I just don't care about. I know what I can push until later. I know how to evaluate the difference between a good resource for me and a bad resource for me. And I know how to keep myself on track and how to keep myself having fun you know, I have little, I can sort of tell when I'm starting to become discouraged. I can see those signs and I, I know how to deal with it. Like I know how to respond. I've like pre-programmed, okay, you're not having fun. It's time to go watch a movie instead of, you know, working on this vocabulary or working on this script that you're creating. Um, so I think that's, that's the main difference is just knowing what to do and having somebody kind of show me the path. 
You had mentioned that now you kind of have these more concrete goals that you work towards on like a daily, a weekly, a monthly basis. So this wouldn't be something abstract, like I want to speak French fluently. These sound like actual things that you can almost like check off a checklist. So I'd love to know more about what these goals look like for you specifically. So yeah, so I try to pick things that are really tangible and really concrete because I, I have a strong perfectionist streak and I have really a tendency to set unrealistic goals. And so for me, having extremely specific things is super helpful. So for example, my in-laws are Russian. So when I was starting to learn Russian the second time, um, I set really specific goals like I want to be able to... Um, you know, describe my day. When I go over to their house for dinner and they ask me, how was your day? I want to be able to answer that question in Russian. Um, for French, I'm at a point where I'm conversational, but we all know that conversational fluency is by topic, right? And so I would pick a topic that I'm interested in and I would learn how to discuss that topic. And I would say, okay, I want to be able, I want to know enough vocabulary about environmentalism that I can sit down and have a 10 minute conversation, an interesting conversation about environmentalism. Um, or for languages where I'm newer, I, I often start with really basic scripts. So, you know, I want to be able to introduce myself and say, what I do for a living. I want to be able to explain my educational history because I use languages for work sometimes. So it's good to be able to make that kind of resume presentation. Um, and also specific things like I want to be able to read an article in a simple newspaper. You know, that's a really specific goal. When I learned Spanish, which I use at work, I wanted to be able to explain certain aspects of um, the programs that we offer at the community center where I teach. I wanted to be able to explain in Spanish to people, here's how you register, here's how the program works. You know, I wanted to explain all of our kind of spiel in Spanish. And that was another concrete goal for me. So just some examples. You have a, a process to, to get to that point because it can feel like when you're at the point where you can have like basic conversations, there's um, a lot of leeway there that you can uh, kind of sound like Tarzan a little bit and make lots of mistakes. But when you're doing something, like you said, you have to do in Spanish that's very specific and you really need that uh, um, very the thematic uh, vocabulary, how did you get the practice for it and what other things did you do to make that transition to get to uh, that more fluent point? Um, so a couple of things. I talk to myself a lot. Um, <laughs> I, I know it's it, a lot of people say that it makes them feel weird, and it made me feel weird at first too. But I think of, I used to do music, and I know Shannon, you're a musician too. And I strongly believe that with language, it's, it's like anything else. It's, you know, it's a muscle, and you have to create that kind of muscle memory. I notice, for example, when I speak French, I feel like my my mouth is like tighter, like tenser, almost like I have an embouchure um, than when I'm speaking English. And so I, I strongly believe that you have to build up those muscles. So I, I really do walk around the house, particularly when I'm at home by myself and just kind of chatting to myself in the target language. I make scripts and then I practice them. You know, I'll be driving and I used to do theater as well. So I try to get really into it. You know, I try to insert emotion and not just robotically repeat the phrases that I'm trying to practice. I try to imagine, you know, how would I want to say this when I was actually speaking to a person? Um, so I try to really practice as though I'm preparing for a play. 
And the other thing that I do is I have a lot of notebooks and I like to make notes by hand. I love writing by hand. And so I make notes about, you know, imagining a particular situation and I kind of brainstorm like, okay, I'm going to have a discussion about the, the programs that we offer at the community center. What questions are people going to ask? And then I'll try to ask, I'll try to phrase the questions in Spanish. So what questions, and I'll maybe come up with five or six questions that somebody might ask in Spanish. And then from each of those questions, I'll say, okay, what are the two or three major points that I would want to explain to that person in my answer and write that in Spanish too. And obviously this involves new vocabulary that I don't know. So I have to look stuff up, but that helps me feel like I'm, I'm kind of gaming out a, <laughs> a preparedness strategy for that situation. And then, so it's a combination of two things. I would say it's, it's planning and then rehearsing. That's basically all it is, is I have to sit down and do the, the brainstorming work of what is the other person probably going to say what am I going to want to say? And in the middle, what am I going to say if somebody says something and I have no idea what they said? <laughs> or it seems like the other person isn't understanding me and I want to check in. So I kind of have um, a list of like utility phrases in every language. Things like, um, you know, could you, could you say that again? Or could you use simpler language? Or do you understand what I'm saying? Is my pronunciation okay? You know, different, different check-in questions. Um, and I find the more that I practice those and the more that I'm prepared, the more confident I am in the moment. And so much of communication is just confidence, right? It's, it's just being able to kind of go with the flow. And sometimes even in English, you know, you, you misspeak or somebody doesn't understand you or they didn't hear you, but it doesn't fluster us in our native language. We just shrug and we just repeat ourselves and it's fine. And so that's what I try to really cultivate now in my, my languages that I'm learning is that sense of it's no big deal if I have to repeat myself. It's no big deal if somebody has to rephrase something. And I find if I don't make it weird, if I don't feel awkward, the other person is much more likely to feel like, oh, everything's fine. I'd love to talk about the process you mentioned a moment ago where you speak to yourself and you work on these scripts and you prepare like certain questions and how you would answer them in the different languages. And you said that doing this involves a lot of new vocabulary and looking things up. So I'm wondering what you specifically do to kind of keep this from becoming overwhelming or even tedious? Like, do you slowly step into these sorts of topics, like gradually working up to something more advanced so that you're not taking on too much new material at one time? Or what is your kind of process for not being overwhelmed by how much you may have to look up? Yeah, that's a really good point. So I have two kind of modes for this. If I have to do something for work because I just have to, then I don't really have a choice. You know, even if the vocabulary is really daunting, I kind of have to find a way to make it work. But that's, I would say that's only 5% of my situations. The vast majority of the time, I do have more of a choice. And so I kind of try to pick my topics strategically. So for example, you know, it's in French, it's easy for me to talk about educational reform in France because I'm already interested in education, already interested in legal and social and government issues. I have a background in, in law, so I have that kind of grounding. And so it's not a huge jump to talk about educational reform. But I don't know anything about, you know, construction. So for me to talk about that would be, a, I would save that until I, I was more advanced. Um, and 
so I try to pick my topics strategically with things that I feel like, number one, I probably will already know some of the vocabulary just by chance. And number two, things that I'm interested enough in that it's worth spending the time. Like, am I actually going to want to discuss this with people? And after I picked the topic and I start making the script, I have kind of um, in the back of my head, (laughs) I'm kind of watching to pay attention to, okay, when I'm doing the brainstorming, how many words am I needing to look up? Am I needing to look up just, you know, a few specialized terms, in which case everything is fine? Or am I getting frustrated because I go to write a sentence and I have to look up half of the words in the sentence? And if that's starting to happen, then that's kind of a flag for me that I'm not ready for that topic yet. And the other trick that I like to use is when I'm looking up words, I try to think to myself, am I ever going to use this word when talking about anything else? Or is this like a one use specialty word? And if I'm looking up a lot of probably this is the only conversation topic I will ever need this word for type of words, then that to me is another flag that maybe this is not an awesome use of my time, um, at least not at the lower and intermediate levels. So I, I feel like you, you set forth your process and you're following your process, but then you also kind of have to be paying attention. Like, does this feel like it sucks? <laughs> you know, if you, if you feel like you're really slogging, then I think, especially if you have a perfectionist streak, there's this pressure. Well, I've committed, you know, this is my process. I have to keep going. I don't want to be a quitter, but I think you have to listen to that feedback and you have to be observant. And if you're not enjoying it, if it's feeling really difficult, if it feels like you have to look up every other word, you're, it's probably not a good, you're probably not ready for that. So that's what I, that's what I try to do. It's a great way of looking at it. And I think uh, perfectionism definitely holds a lot of us back from uh, moving forward with our languages. And um, with a little segue kind of related to that, I did want to uh, talk about something that I found very inspirational about your story. That uh, it's like you said, you you definitely found language learning to be a big challenge until you got into it uh, more recently. Um, but you've started using it in many aspects of your life. But in this process, you've also run into some uh, external challenges in your life that would have uh, uh, made things a lot more difficult. So I'd like you, I'd like to hear what you have to say about that. Yeah, I think you're, I probably know what you're talking about. <laughs> so um, at the beginning of 2019, so just over a year ago, I was diagnosed with thyroid cancer. And it was actually, I think it was day three or day four of a French language challenge that I had just started. And I was really excited. I was really into it. And then I got this really devastating news. Thankfully, it was caught really early obviously. Um, And so I ended up having to go through quite a whirlwind process, you know, obviously lots of medical appointments, um, you know, scans, meeting specialists, being assessed for surgery. And then I had surgery in February to remove my thyroid. And then there was the recovery period after that. And so through all of this, I remember thinking, should I quit the challenge? And I was going to, and I don't think anybody would have I think it would have been fine if I had, like, I don't think it would have been um, something I would have been ashamed of or anything. But the thing that was really striking for me is that I didn't quit the challenge because I thought that I shouldn't. I didn't quit the challenge because I didn't want to. I didn't want to lose that. And I kind of almost felt like I was being stubborn. Like, I am not going to, like, I've been waiting for this. I'm excited about this. I'm not going to let 
this cancer bullshit. Sorry, I don't know if I'm allowed to swear on the podcast. (laughs) You can edit that out if you need to. I'm not going to let this cancer experience take that away from me. And also, one of the things that I love about language learning is I feel like it is inherently an extremely optimistic activity. You know, you're you're working on something that is going to take a little bit of time and will pay off in the future. So it's an inherently future-looking activity, inherently optimistic. It's also inherently optimistic in the sense of it implies that you're going to travel or connect with people from other cultures. It implies to me a kind of mental openness to other possibilities and other ways of seeing the world. And so I thought it was actually really good for me to have something that I really enjoyed and that also was kind of optimistic because it became almost symbolic. Like, I'm not going to stop learning French because I'm not going to die. And so I'm going to need to speak French in the future. So that actually was really calming for me. And, you know, if I had a really stressful day, if I had a day where I was worrying about things that I couldn't control, it was really helpful to have something that I could have a little bit of control over, you know, I could sit down and I could listen to a podcast or I could review something, you know, do a little bit of reading or vocabulary review that I found interesting. So it was really helpful. Um, And the thing that I always want to be careful about, you know, when, when people ask me about this is I don't want to give the impression that when something negative happens in your life, you can't drop language learning, you know, you have to keep doing it no matter what. That's absolutely not it. I think if there had been maybe a different type of upheaval, I might have stepped back from the challenge. But just the way that it worked out, you know, I I said to myself, realistically, is this going to fit? Do I still want to be doing it? And I, I just acted in accordance with my answers to those questions. I listened to what felt right at the time. And it actually worked out really well. I decided that when my surgery was over, my reward for myself would be that I would go to France. And so I did. I did. When I when I recovered from surgery, I took a one-week trip to France by myself. And I stayed um, in a kind of a homestay situation <clears throat> with a, a wonderful elderly couple in France, in the the west of France. And it was absolutely a fantastic experience. And I will always remember that as being, you know, something where I went through a really, really challenging experience and I tried to just make the best of it. And so that's the thing that I'm proudest of is that I, I tried to hold on to things that I really enjoyed and things that made me feel like my life was still mine. Um, and over one year later, um, my scans are all clear and fingers crossed that continues. So, uh, so far the story has a very happy ending. (laughs) I love your positive outlook and how you see language learning as this kind of like forward thinking, optimistic process. And, um, just like that, the language learning itself almost seems like motivation enough for you, but having learned several languages myself, I know that it's not always easy to feel super motivated to actually sit down and do the studies. So I'd love to know about what some of your techniques for maintaining your motivation are for doing the work. That's a really good point. I love the way that you make the distinction between motivation for the language and motivation for doing the work, because I think that's it. I'm full of theoretical motivation (laughs) for lots of things, but my actual like fine grained motivation to right now sit down at this desk and do this work is sometimes lacking. So for me, a couple of things help. Number one, I love schedules and anything that has to do with stationary. So I'm really a fan of like paper and notebooks and, um, 
making lists or making little hand-drawn schedules. And they can be really important visual cues for me. So I'll make up, you know, a list of my goals for the week or my goals for the month. And then I'll just post it above my desk. Or I'll make a little bit of a schedule that says, you know, Monday I'm doing this with Spanish and Tuesday I'm doing this with French. And I'll post it above my, above my desk or on my bulletin board. And the other thing that I find super, super helpful for motivation is having a very specific plan about what I'm going to do. Not necessarily that, you know, I have to know exactly on Tuesday at four o'clock, I'm going to read this passage. It doesn't have to be that specific, but I maybe have two or three key resources with each language that I'm working through at a given time. And so when I sit down, I can just say, okay, today I'm going to do this listening resource, or today I'm going to read this article that I started last week. And there's not that feeling of overwhelming choice when I sit down at the desk. I'm like, okay, it's time to do French. <laughs> what does that mean? What does it mean to do French? It, no, I have, I have a pre-existing list of specific resources. And then I can choose. I can say, okay, do I feel like reading this book or listening to this podcast or working on these grammar exercises? And it's like a really concrete choice between three defined alternatives. Um, the other thing that I find super motivating is setting up social ties. So for example, my main motivation for learning Russian was that my in-laws are Russian and I wanted to be able to speak with them, particularly the older members of the family who don't speak English. And so that, that was really motivating. And so this is going to sound so cheesy, but I actually took photos of them and I put them around my language learning space. And <laughs> there was a little bit of an element of guilt. <laughs> you're like, you're looking at the picture of Babushka, you're like, okay, I'll study. <laughs> but it was really effective in, in a really human, really positive way. And, you know, I do the same thing with, I'm working on um, Chinese right now. And so I have pictures of some of the places in China that I want to be able to visit one day. And it helps create an emotional connection for me with like an emotional, a positive emotional connection for this is the payoff. You know, this is the good feeling that I'm going to get to feel if I progress in this language the way that I want to. So that, that really helps me. I love that. I love the uh, the granular, uh, like the photos that can motivate you and the fact that you have your schedule and the specificity. Because like you said, if you're just kind of generically going to be learning French, then that doesn't really motivate you that much necessarily, or you don't know what to do and uh, it can be very hard to, to go forward. So I, I really like the specificity that you have in this and that definitely would have helped you through the harder times. But if, uh, like if, you, if you ran into challenges, how, how did you get around those? So I think, and this, this is actually right where I was going to go, so I think we're on the same wavelength. Sometimes I find myself really resisting sitting down with a certain resource. And if it happens once, it happens twice, whatever, there could be a lot of different reasons that I'm feeling stressed out or I am having a hard time studying. But I find if, it's, if it starts happening over and over again with a particular resource... I used to be so moralistic about it. You know, I would take it as a point of like stoic virtue that I will not quit. I will not give up on this textbook. <laughs> but now I'm much more pragmatic. I'm much more mercenary about it. If I am not engaging well, like if I'm not feeling drawn in by a particular podcast or a particular resource, even if someone I really like and respect recommended it to me, I, I just... I have a lot less guilt now. 
about just saying, you know what, this is not the thing for me. You know, somebody else maybe really, really likes this program, but it's not working for me. I'm going to try something else. And I think if you find yourself doing this with every resource, it should be a white, it should be a red flag that maybe there's something else going on. But, you know, people just have their particular preferences. And, you know, I'm, I'm interested in particular types of things. So I've had probably five or six podcasts recommended to me in in French, for example, by people who, who say, this is my favorite podcast. And I've liked half of them. And, you know, I, I just had to learn to tell myself that it, there's nothing wrong. I'm not insulting my friend if I don't like her favorite podcast. And so I think having having that readiness to trust my instincts and to trust my preferences has really helped me because then I'm not forcing myself to slog it through with materials that just really aren't speaking to me in that moment for whatever reason. So that definitely helps. And also if I see myself having a lot of nays, having a lot of days where I didn't meet my study goal, I try to sit down again with a notebook and I just write in the middle of the page. You know, I just write, why am I not studying? And I just, I just start writing whatever's on my mind. And it might be something like, I'm tired. I'm really stressed out. I have a lot of work and I'll just let myself sort of start making notes. And then I try to pretend like this is a friend who's coming to me for, you know, with, with this problem, like, okay, what advice would I give a friend who's having this problem? And if I, if I had someone come to me saying that they were having a hard time studying because they were too busy, too stressed out, I know exactly what I would say. I would say, well, you have to look for ways to fit it in in your dead time so that it's not taking up, you know, it doesn't require as much time. So when I go for a walk, I'll listen to a podcast as opposed to sitting at my desk and doing it more like study-wise. And okay, maybe I'm not getting as much of a benefit from the podcast because I'm not writing down any of the new words or whatever, but I'm still engaging with the language. Um, and I can also do other things like while I'm driving, I can listen to things on Spotify. I can listen to language tapes or I can listen to podcasts and I can do fun things. Like I can watch movies in the target language or I can schedule just, um, chat sessions with my friends who speak those languages, or I can find a language exchange partner, somebody who's not a tutor, somebody who just wants to kind of chit chat. And so if I repeatedly find myself having a hard time engaging, I just try to find ways to make it fun. And the test for me is what can I come up with that I will actually want to do for at least 15 or 20 minutes a day. And at that point, I stop worrying about how useful it is in terms of language acquisition, because the most, the, 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 the only thing that is 100% not helpful for learning a language is doing nothing. <laughs> and so even if watching a movie isn't as good as, you know, working through a script, it's still better than nothing. And so if it keeps me in that world, then I think it's worth it, at least for the short term until things in my life clear up. And I feel like motivation tends to come in like in waves. You have periods of high motivation, you have periods of low motivation. And I think I've been through those waves enough time that I just accept that I'm going to have these bursts of super productiveness. I'm going to learn a ton of vocabulary. I'm going to really finally figure out how the subjunctive works. And, you know, I'm going to really make a lot of progress. And then I'm going to have a period of maybe three weeks where I feel like I'm not really learning that much. I'm listening to a bunch of podcasts. I've, I watch a couple movies a week and I don't feel like I'm learning anything, but I'm still showing up. 
Um, and I just kind of know when I'm in one of those periods, that's okay. It's going to come back. Um, and so far it always has. And I think the fact that I keep engaging with media in the target language, even if it's something really simple, um, means that when I do go back for my next kind of productive spurt, I still have all that passive exposure from my kind of lackadaisical period. And that I actually think really helps because then, you know, I have I have exposure. I've heard a lot of the language. And plus, I don't have any weird shame <laughs> built up. You want to avoid the like weird shame spiral. Definitely. I love how compassionate you are with yourself in your language studies. And I feel like that's something that a lot of language learners struggle with is when they make mistakes or when they're not feeling motivated, our natural tendency is to kind of beat ourselves up over it. And then we just feel worse that you had just mentioned. And earlier, you had also talked about how, you know, you try to worry less about mistakes so that you feel a little bit more confident in your languages. And I think these two are really re- interrelated. So I'd love to know some of your secrets for, you know, building that confidence and building that compassion, self-compassion. Oh, that's a good question. Um, because it was definitely, that is definitely not something that came naturally to me. My, if anything, my natural inclination is absolutely the opposite. I was extremely critical of myself when I was a child and when I was in university, like all throughout law school. That's just my, again, I said, I have a really perfectionist streak. And, you know, I, I was that kind of person in school. If I got a 95 out of 100 on a test, I would be flipping through to try to figure out where I lost the five points. We, oh, I should have known that. And, and it's so destructive and it's so self-sabotaging. And it took me a really long time to see that. So I think the first and most important thing is the awareness, like being logically aware that that is not helpful, that is not doing you any favors, and that is not going to get you where you want to be. Because I think that's the that's the delusion that so many of us have, that if I relax on myself, I'm going to slip, I'm going to do poorly, I'm not going to learn as much. And I have found that it's actually the opposite. The the stricter and less forgiving we are with ourselves, the more likely we are to abandon it completely. And that's that perfectionist, you know, all or nothing. Like can't be perfect, so I might as well just stop. So number one, I would say is the awareness that it's not helpful. But then many of us know that perfectionism is, is unhelpful, but we still have those feelings. So there's a difference between knowing something on an intellectual level and really feeling it, like really changing your mood. And I think the key for that is you have to kind of fake that expression, fake it till you make it. So I actually had a friend who made me, used to make me repeat out loud in front of her phrases like, I missed a day of, we used to jog together. So she used to make me repeat, I missed a day of jogging and that's fine. (laughs) And I felt so silly saying it out loud, but she was a psychology major and she was insistent that saying it out loud has a different neurological effect than thinking it. And so I actually still do, I can't believe, I wonder if she even, she would laugh if she heard me admit this, but I I still do that sometimes, you know, say it out loud to myself. I missed a day of studying or I didn't do the thing that I said I was going to do and that's okay. And just trying to really go through the motions of self-forgiveness and self-compassion, even when in the back of my head, there's still that critical voice has really been helpful for me because the more that you do it, the more you're forming those neural pathways and your brain really does kind of get used to the idea that, oh yes, actually maybe it's not the end of the world if 
I studied for 45 minutes instead of the hour that I was supposed to study or I didn't study at all. So that's a, that's a huge thing for me. And also I try to use the mirror technique. I think of someone who I really care about, you know, a, a friend or a loved one. And I think about what would I say to them if they were in my situation? You know, if they came to me and they said, I'm awful because I just skipped, you know, going to the gym for the third day in a row and I'm a total failure as a human being. Like, what would I say to that person? And then I try to say that to myself. Um, and that really helps me. And I'm trying to think if there's anything else specific that I've done. I do have a couple of, I don't know what I would call them, like encouraging quotations in different languages that I've written. Just things that have been particularly striking for me when I read them. I would copy them down in my own handwriting in the, in the target language and post them near my desk. And sometimes it feels a little cheesy, but sometimes there are days when I look at them and I think, okay, yes, there's a reason I put that there. That really is true. And even though I'm not feeling that way right now, I know that that's the way that I want to be feeling. So I'm going to try to like distance myself from these <laughs> worries about, about missing, missing a day or, or missing a week or missing a month. Because sometimes people have this thing where they go into, and I've done this too, where the longer you're away from something, the more shame you feel or the more discomfort you feel. And human nature is just to, we turn away from things that are harmful. It's totally human. And it's actually evolutionarily a really good idea. <laughs> um, but, you know, you end up being in this situation where if you allow Spanish or, you know, German or Korean or whatever to become something that makes you feel bad, <laughs> it's going to be really hard to engage with it. And so when I see that starting to happen, when I see myself thinking about Russian and feeling like a bad feeling in the pit of my stomach, that's a huge red flag for me. It starts to wave. And I think, oh, no, I cannot let this happen. I cannot let Russian become my enemy. I have to find a way to like make friends with Russian. And, and usually that involves like just forgiving myself and just resetting and just reminding myself why I'm doing it. But you, I really feel like you have to be on the lookout for that feeling in that pit of your stomach that you've, you've somehow ruined it. Um, and you have to be find a way to let that go. That's a, that's really amazing advice because that's a way out of the vicious circle, as it were. That, like you said, if you've been out of the loop for three days, then all you're doing is adding more and more shame on top of that and making it harder and harder. And I know I've certainly uh, been kicking myself for being out of the momentum for for a bit of time. So that creates the negative feeling with the, with the language. And like you said, that's just human nature that we're going to want to avoid that. It makes sense why um, the fourth day, I'll just want to avoid it again, even more. So some uh, self-compassion can go a very, very long way. And uh, as, well as, as well as languages, um, you've also been described as a bit of a Renaissance woman yourself because you've got like, uh, you build robots with your husband. Uh, let's see, you got, you've, you've been making like technical how-to videos for the challengers. Uh, you used to work in horticulture. So uh, you've got quite the resume. How do, you, how do you manage to get all of these completely different projects uh, in your head? And how do you manage your time while still um, being successful with a main project like a language? I think that's, a, that's a, a wonderfully polite way of saying that I'm really indecisive and I like a whole bunch of different things and I can't decide which thing to do. <laughs> because, yeah, I love... Um, I love so many different things and that's been kind of a um, perennial struggle for me is to fit everything that I like that's so different 
in simultaneously. And yeah, I used to, I used to work in law. I have a law degree. I used to work in, um, education. I was, I did curricular development at a university in Canada and I teach English now professionally. And I used to, I used to work at a, a series of organic vegetable and flower farms. Um, and yeah, I, <laughs> I think the key is I try to find out what's important to me, what I'm enjoying, and try to to be really smart about choosing how I involve certain things in my life. So, for example, I used to work in, in agriculture and horticulture, and it was about six years that I did that, and it was really fantastic. But eventually, I decided for various reasons that as a profession, it was starting to burn me out. And this has a lot to do with kind of the economics of, of farming and the fact that I didn't have any insurance benefits and all these different things. And also the fact that it's a very physically demanding job and I, I got injured a couple of times. And so that was kind of a wake up call for me. And I thought, okay, yes, I do love this thing, but that doesn't mean that I have to do it for my job. So I ended up stepping back. And so I still garden, I still do a lot of, you know, outdoorsy things, but I don't do it as my job anymore. Um, and that's kind of a, a good example for how I try to approach things in general. You know, some things are good as a job. Some things are good as a hobby. Just because you love something doesn't mean you have to do it for money. And just because you love something doesn't mean you have to do it for 10 hours a week. So, you know, for example, I'm really interested in music and it sometimes makes me sad that I don't have time to play in like a community orchestra or anything, but I don't like, <laughs> I just have to be realistic and, and admit that I do not have time for that unless I were to drop something else. And I historically in the past, I really took on way too much I struggled with insomnia for many years because I wasn't, I just wasn't sleeping. I was only sleeping three or four or five hours a night because I was just trying to fit into many things and it resulted in stress and, and lots of bad outcomes. So I actually have a good recommendation for anyone who has that problem is to sit down and make a list of all of the things that are important to you in your life and how many hours a week you feel like you need to spend on that thing. In, you know, so for example, say if you want to get seven hours of sleep a night, you know, seven times seven, that's 49. And how, how many hours a day do you spend eating, you know, showering, taking care of your kids, going to work? How many hours a day do you spend, you know, or hours a week do you spend exercising and kind of make a list of everything that you would love to be able to do and how many hours a week you would love to be able to do it and then add it up. <laughs> and I guarantee you it's going to be more than the number of hours in a week. And that exercise for me was a really huge wake up call that if I just delude myself into thinking, oh, if I just try harder, I can fit all of this in. No, there's no magic time warping ability that comes from enthusiasm. Unfortunately, you can make really effective use of your time, but you can't actually change the nature of the space time. continuum. Um, and I'm a huge nerd. So I often use technology to kind of organize my schedule and that kind of thing. And I've just found that I've had to make choices and, you know, language learning for me has been one of the things that has come out on top because of how much I enjoy it. But I also have to be realistic that in general, I have an hour a day max to spend on language learning. And so that means that I can't do every language every day. And it means that, you know, if I'm preparing for something really important at work that involves doing a lot of Spanish, my other languages are going to have to take a backseat for a couple of weeks. And I think just making peace with the limited nature of the space 
space-time continuum is sounds ridiculous, but it's actually really important. And I think a lot of people struggle with this because they always have this idea that if they just tried harder, it would work out. But sometimes they actually need to, you know, rearrange some things in their life and they really need to 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 make it make a change. And yeah, the, the the technical videos that I do, I honestly, I just do purely because I love them. I'm a huge nerd. And I find in the language learning community, I hear the same thing from a lot of people over and over again, that when they're getting into language learning in the challenge or something, they're learning two languages at once, they say. They feel like they're learning, you know, German, but they're also learning the internet. <laughs> um, and for me, that's not the case. You know, I feel super comfortable with this stuff and I've been geeking out online since, you know, 2002. So I, I try to gravitate towards things that I genuinely enjoy or, or things that I feel like are genuinely useful. And, and, and I am always conscious that there's a trade-off um, with, you know, anytime I'm choosing to do one thing, I am effectively choosing not to do three other things with that hour. And so I have to make sure that I'm making those choices in ways that I feel okay about. I think the uh, t- discussion on time management is a really great segue into my next question, which is something that we ask everyone who comes on the podcast, since this is the Language Hacking Podcast. And obviously, time management is one of your hacks, but I'm curious to know more generally what language hacking means to you. Oh, I think that's a, that's a really good question. So I think, to me, language hacking means making language learning your own, like finding your own best, like your own personalized best practice, your own personalized best approach. Obviously, you have to see what other people are doing. But the wonderful thing about learning languages on your own, and the thing that I think is so great about autodidactic learning is that you can choose, right? It's all up to you what resources you use, what um, schedule you set. And for a new person, I think this can be really intimidating. And so it's really good to follow someone else's signposts for the first, maybe first challenge or first even six months or something. But as you become more confident, as you notice how you're doing it, you can like hack off the parts that you don't like and you can add more of the parts that you do like and you can pay attention to yourself, always be super self-aware and be like, oh, wow, I really love this part of learning Spanish or I really find this part of the grammar fascinating. I'm going to spend more time on that. And, and to me, language hacking is all about really tailoring the external resources and the external strategies that other people have, impl- have developed and making them work as efficiently as they possibly can for your particular personality, your particular life, your particular schedule, your particular goals. Um, And so sometimes that means totally disregarding conventional advice. (laughs) And, you know, I know that's one of the things, Benny, I know that you're known for is that you, you often fly in the face of conventional wisdom. There are people out there saying, well, you should, you should, you know, study for this amount of time before you start having a conversation and you tried it and it wasn't working for you. And, you know, your version of language hacking is what if I just start talking right now, even though I don't know what I'm doing, maybe that'll work for me. And it, and you know, it did, it it was, it was a fantastic result for you. And so I think that's the thing that people have to bring that attitude of I'm the inventor here. Like I'm inventing, I'm every day I'm inventing my own method and I'm the boss of me and nobody else can tell me what is going to work best for me. People can make suggestions and you should definitely listen to people who have done it before and succeeded. But at the end of the day, you have to also be working on building up, I think your own 
confidence in your own self-judgment that you are the one who knows how something is working for you. And if you find that something is not working for you, it's okay to, to change it. It's okay to experiment. Absolute worst case scenario, it doesn't work. And then you can go back to the old way or you can try something different. So I think people need to have that kind of, and I think that's the essence of hacking is that kind of audacity. I can change it. I can fix it. I can make it better. And that's that attitude for me is the thing that, that really defines language hacking. Very, very well put. I love that. So uh, just before we wrap up, I, don't, I did want to, um, I'm very curious to hear, what are your upcoming projects? Like what um, is on the horizon for you? What are you working on? What are you learning these days? Oh, that's a good question. So I, I'm still, so I'm, I'm continuing on learning Chinese. I'm still um, quite a beginner, but really enjoying it. So I want to continue on with Chinese. I would love to be able to pass the HSK um, by the end of uh, 2020. So that's a goal for me. And I have to give a presentation in Spanish. Oh, it was supposed to be in July. And now I don't know when it's going to be, but it will be sometime. And so preparing for that is something that I'm actively working on. I'm really working on upping my French um, accuracy. So I'm quite conversational in French. I can talk about I could talk for hours and hours. I could go live in France at this point if I wanted to, but I still make a lot of mistakes. So I'm working um, with an italki tutor really specifically on some of my recurring errors and trying to become, try to speak more correctly. I'm really tempted to try a new language, but um, I'm kind of on the fence about whether or not I have time for that. As I said, um, I'm still still kind of thinking about it. But the other thing that I want to do is I want to read a book in Russian. There's a, a book that I studied in university uh, called, uh, in the English version, is called Fathers and Sons uh, by Turgenev. And so I would really like to be able to read that in Russian this year. And I don't read a lot of literature in Russian. I mostly use it to speak with family. So it's kind of a totally different like side of Russian. And my partner, who was a native Russian speaker, he's a heritage speaker. So he left Russia when he was eight years old. So he's totally fluent, but he's also kind of illiterate because <laughs> he's, he's never really taken it in school because he was too young when he left. So yeah, we'll see if he's interested in um, improving his literacy with me as I read through a book. So those are my, those are my ongoing projects. Well, thank you so much for being on with us today and for all of the amazing advice that you've given during this interview. And thank you for all of the incredible work you do as a coach in the Fluent in Three Months Challenge as well. Um, and I look forward to seeing your continued learning and progress in all the languages that you're working on. Thank you so much for having me. And also thank you, both of you, for all of the work that you do. You inspire a lot of people and you also give a lot of really good advice. So. Absolutely. And you inspire people yourself. I've been hearing all about your language parties and everything that you, you're hosting as uh, part of the challenge. So it's one of the reasons we wanted to be interviewing you. You've, you are making your own difference in the language learning community. And we're very appreciative of that. Oh, thank you so much. And for those of you listening, if you'd like to learn more about Paulette's projects or any of the things that we've mentioned in this episode, you can find all of those links and that information in the show notes for this episode of the podcast. Other than that, thank you so much for listening and happy language learning. Happy language learning, everyone, and we'll see you next time. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Language Hacking Podcast. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
If you find this episode valuable, please leave us a review so we can continue to grow and spread the word about language hacking. The Language Hacking Podcast is presented by Benny Lewis and Shannon Kennedy and produced by David Sobel, with special thanks to the Fluent in Three Months team. The theme music was written and performed by Shannon Kennedy. Find the show notes at languagehacking.com forward slash podcast. Thanks for listening and happy language learning.